Do turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 2, the reading that we had earlier today. While you're looking that up, can I just remind you of the uh, Philadelphia Conference of Reformed Theology. Back in 2002, I came to this conference uh, and didn't know anybody here and sat about the second row down here in the middle and uh, enjoyed thoroughly being here and uh, hearing some of the people whose names I knew, but I'd never met them. And uh, one of the speakers, Sinclair Ferguson, recognized me and, uh, because I knew him well. And uh, he took me under his wing, which was great for, for that time. So I came in 2002, I came in 2006, and still nobody knew who I was, uh, incognito. Uh, but if you've never been to one of these, they're really excellent. It's like having a mini uh, theological education for a weekend. Uh, so if you're going to come, sign up. Details are, are there. Well, Second Samuel chapter 2. This is a continuation of the book of Samuel. You understand there's only one book of Samuel. And part 1, part 2, we've done part 1, we're in part 2. Part 1 is about Saul, his rise and... Whoops, just calm that down a little bit. His rise and fall, like my voice at the moment. Uh, and and uh, so the second part, which we call Samuel, uh, Second Samuel, is about the rise of David and the decline of David. Sadly, the decline of David is going to be actually taking up the bulk of the second part of this, uh, of this book. When Jesus came preaching, he came preaching the kingdom of God. And it's here in the life of David that the kingdom begins to be a, an important feature of the teaching of Scripture in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. The kingdom of God has manifested itself, has found itself represented in the world uh, in two forms. In David's day, the kingdom of God was represented in the world by a nation state, the nation state of Israel. Today, the kingdom of God is represented in the world by the church. And though those are two very different entities, one fighting wars with real weapons, in which real people are being killed in order to establish the kingdom. So the church today is fighting with weapons, fighting real wars, uh, taking prisoners for God, but not with weapons like swords or spears or bows and arrows, but with the word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, and which accomplishes God's work in the world. The principles, spiritual principles, that obtained then still obtain. The weapons are different. Uh, the kind of prisoners that are taken are different, but nonetheless, the principles behind them remain the same. And when we come to this little passage that we've read today, the main theme of the passage is the kingdom of David. David becomes the king of Judah. You can see that in verse 4, verse 7, and verse 11. It's emphasized that David becomes the king of the Jews of Judah, before he becomes king of Israel. And the kingdom that's established here, uh, that begins right here in this, in this chapter, this kingdom is established on God's terms. This kingdom is expanded or extended by God's grace. And this kingdom is resisted by God's enemies. So let's look at that as we go through the passage. First of all, the kingdom is established on God's terms. Verse 4 is the key verse. The men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house 
of Judah. Now, if you've been following the story so far, you will think to yourself, well, hasn't David already been anointed king? And that's true, of course. Way back, way back years before, when he was a teenager, he's now a man of 30 years of age. He's uh, on the verge of old age, or, or middle age, rather. And, and uh, when he was a teenager, long, long time before this, he was anointed by Samuel privately, in secret, to be the future king of Israel. And when he was anointed then, of course, there was no fanfare. There, was no, there were new, no news reports. People generally didn't know what was going on as uh, he was anointed king. And through all the tortuous route through which David has gone, David never ceased, not one moment, did he ever cease to believe the word of God, the promise of God, that one day he would be king over Israel. Now, it all seems as if everything is coming into place. His enemy, Saul, is dead. His opponents have been scattered. There is now a vacancy on the throne of Israel. It is safe for him to go back home to his native land. His people, his men and their wives and their children, they all want to go back home to their own places where they've come from. And you would think, you would think that his first step would be recruitment, strategy, public relations in order to get set up for the return of the great victor back and the taking, the seizing of the throne. But you see, there's a difference between this king and the previous king, King Saul. And the difference lies here, that whereas Saul did not consult the Lord, David did. In fact, in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 10, uh, and at the end of that chapter, uh, verses 13 and 14, this is what we read about King Saul. Saul died for, the, for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord, but also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. And so when we come to the story of David here, do you notice the very first thing he does? He turns to inquiring of the Lord. After this, we read, David inquired of the Lord. He wants to know what the next step in his life journey is to be. Now, you'd think he already knew that. You'd think he already knew that God had called him to be king. He's been anointed to be king. God has preserved him through the ups and downs of his life to this moment. Surely he should go ahead and seize the throne. But no, David has learned. He has learned, and we discover over and over again, David has learned this lesson. He will not do anything without inquiring of the Lord. And in this, this action of David, he sets, he sets a precedent, really, for what is going to come in the story of Israel's kings. That when, Israel, when Israel's kings are reigning as they should, the kingdom, the kingdom of God present with their reign will be not just a matter of power, it will be primarily a matter of obedience. It will be a matter of obedience. And in due time, we'll find that that is precisely, of course, the kind of kingship that Jesus has. 
Well, listen to, to David. We, we find him going to, the, to God and saying this. What, what shall I do? Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. Now, that phrase that's used there, to go up, is an interesting phrase. It, it actually refers to a sort of ascension. The verb to go is used to describe an ascension, a, a going up to some holy place or some high place. Now, uh, Hebron, Hebron wasn't among the mountains. It's not in the Rockies or anything like that. Hebron is in raised ground. It is among the hills of Judah. So literally, geographically, for David to go from where he is and to go to Hebron, he's got to go up to Hebron. Also, of course, Hebron is in the promised land. It's in Israel. Whereas where he is, he's in Philistia. He's outside of the promised land. Israel Israel is God's place. It's the place where God meets with his people. Uh, I come from Scotland. Scotland is the country today nearest heaven. Heaven is a local call away from, uh, from Scotland. Uh, and I say that in all humility, of course. Uh, and, I, and I'm glad to be here as a missionary in, in order that you might hear that. But, but of course, that, that's not really true because um, we've actually brought heaven wherever we've gone. The Scots, that is. <laughs> Presbyterianism in, in America, which is, you know, it's the nearest religion you can find to the Bible, let's face it, was brought here by Scots. But I just say that in passing. <laughs> Israel, it, this is the serious bit, okay, okay, back to the serious bit. Israel, Israel is the country nearest to heaven in the Bible, isn't it? It's the promised land. It's the place where God said, I will dwell there. Heaven really is a, a local call away for the people in Israel. And so when, when David is told to go up to Hebron, he's going up to, metaphorically, he's going up to the place nearest heaven. He's going up to the promised land. He's going up to Hebron, the place where the shrine of God is and where people are worshipping God. He's going up in an ascension of sorts into the place where he will take the throne. He will become the clan chief or the king of Judah there. He will go up. He will ascend in that way. Hebron is, uh, is remembered in the Bible as the place where Abraham set up his altar in a kind of shadow conquest of the land in God's name way back in their history. I, I emphasize this because I think when we reflect on the story of David and we think about the template of David's life as a template of the Messiah's coming, I think we can see David's life falling into three parts. There's David who's the Lord's anointed, but he's despised and rejected by his people. He's, he's outlawed by the authorities. He is hounded to death. He, he is pushed to the place where ultimately he is banished from the promised land. He goes into Philistine territory and lives there among those who are under the curse of God and under the judgment of God. He's living in that place, uh, the place of judgment and the place of the curse. And David himself reflects, as we saw earlier in our studies, he reflects on the fact that it's as if he has been pushed into this by the rejection and the persecution of his own people. And in that sense, David's reign up to this moment is like Jesus' reign when he comes proclaiming the kingdom of God, being anointed by God secretly and privately. You remember, and God has said from the excellent glory to Jesus, this is my beloved son. 
with whom I am well pleased. But throughout his life, that kingship is a secret. It's hidden. People don't recognize him. They don't recognize the kingdom has come. He doesn't look like a king. But kingdom it definitely is, and Pilate, you remember, makes that very clear when he signals, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. That is the link. That is the mental link between Jesus and David. David here is the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king of the Jews in his death. Seems like the end of him. Seems like the end of his kingdom. And then there is his resurrection and his ascension. He goes up. The doors of heaven are thrown open. Open up ye gates, the everlasting doors. Open up for the king of glory must come in. And in the ascension of Jesus, he sits on David's throne. If you ask, where is Jesus today? Spatially, where is Jesus today? He is sitting on David's throne. He has ascended to the throne on which that, that God promised to his father, David. And in that place, he reigns. And that accords to this ascension of David as we read about it as he goes to Hebron at this point. There's more to come on that. We'll come back to it in a moment. But I want to pause for a moment and say something about the way in which David looks for guidance. He goes to the priest, Abiathar, no doubt. Abiathar uses the Urim and the Thummim as a means that God would use in those days to communicate his will to his people. And David seeks the will of God. What shall I do next? And you say to me, well, wouldn't that be great, Liam, if only I had access to that kind of guidance. I've got some tough choices this week. I'd like to know whether I should do this or that or the other thing this week. That would be great if we could come to church and we could conquire of the Lord and the Lord would give us all that we needed to know about what to do and where to go and who to talk to and what to eat and how long to sleep or whatever it is that we've got to do this incoming week. And my answer, of course, is that we don't have that access. We don't have that kind of guidance available to us. David, when he receives this kind of guidance, is not acting as a private, is not acting in the same way you and I do. He's not acting as a private person. He's acting, of course, as the Lord's anointed. He's acting as somebody who is a key role in the salvation history of the world. He needs this guidance in a way you and I don't need this guidance. His life is in the Bible so that you can go to his life and you can see that David is able to discover that God has a plan for his life. He does what the plan of God is. And because he does what the plan of God is, there is salvation for the world. David is the forerunner of the Messiah. Now, I'm not. And my life, my life is not like David's life. And yours isn't like David's life. God has ordained that you and I don't need to know what the next step is in our life. All we need to know is to go back, to go to the scripture, to read the story of David and to know from David's story that God has as much a plan for your life and for my life as he has for David's life. The only difference is David got to know what it was. You and I don't get to know what it is. It's a big surprise. It is. But we look at David's life and we think, look at all the things that happened to David. The twists and the turns and the up and the downs and the times of dejection, the times of rejection, the times when he was, must have been wondering, you know, how is this all going to end? Is it ever going to end? Is there going to be a fulfillment to my plans and my dreams and my hopes and my wishes and my prayers? Is anything going to come out of all of this stuff that's happening to me in my circumstances? Don't you think David must have wondered those things in those days when he wasn't getting any information from God? and was struggling. 
And don't you see, as you look at David, that's the bit about David's life that you and I can take to ourselves. We can learn from David's experience, God has a plan for my life. He has a plan for your life. We get to see it as it unfolds, as, as, it, as it becomes clear in the passage of time, we get to see it. Of course, we can do what David did. We can wait on God. We can pray to God. We can be dependent on God. And then we make our decisions. We take, make our choices. We make our decisions. We, we go the way. We take the circumstances as they appear, and we go the way that they seem to direct us in, trusting that God will stop us if it's the wrong thing. We'll interfere if it's the wrong thing. We'll put a roadblock in the way if it's the wrong thing. We trust God to overrule even in our decisions as we seek to do as well. The one thing that is transferable from David to us is obedience. We can do that. We can obey the revealed will of God. We have the revealed will of God. You see, David's story has got to get into the Bible. Yours and I, ours doesn't. What we have already is the Scripture. In the Scripture, we have the revealed will of God. And when we read the Scriptures together, we can copy David in this. We can be obedient to the will of God as it is revealed. It is a question of obedience. And when we look at David, I think we're meant to see this, that the manifestation of the kingdom in the person of the king is his obedience to God. Now when we come to the New Testament, when we come to the story of Jesus, what is the hallmark of Jesus' life? The hallmark of Jesus' life from the very beginning to the end is that he must be about his father's business. He says that when he's about 12 years of age. Right to the very end, when he cries out, it is finished. What is his preoccupation? It is to do the will of God. In this period of David's life, in the, in the chapters leading up to his ultimately becoming king of Israel, the great feature of David's life has been his obedience to God. The great feature of King Jesus' life is his obedience to God. Uh, the theologians talk about his passive obedience and his active obedience. He's actively obedient in all of his life. It's a life of obedience. He is ob obedient up until and including the time of his death. All of his life is obedience to God. And it's because of his obedience that you and I are able to be saved. Because he is obedient on our behalf. Well, David is obedient. He goes up to Hebron and he is anointed king. And there you have the first fulfillment in the Bible of the promise from the time of Jacob. In Genesis 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, till tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Jesus Christ is sitting on David's throne, and the nations today, represented by many of us here from different nations, and the nations represented by our mission partners out there in the world. The nations are becoming obedient to Jesus. Because the promise, you see, is, finds its fullest fulfillment in David's descendant who ascends to his place in glory. Another little passing thought as I was meditating on this. You see how the ascension of David here makes sense of the little stories in the Bible. Think of one little story about a woman who is a foreigner. She is uh, a member of a tribe, the Moabite tribe. She, uh, she is a member of a tribe which is 
very often under the curse of God and under the judgment of God and is the enemy of Israel. And by a series of circumstances, this woman, this girl, finds herself in Israel, finds herself in Bethlehem, and finds there her true love. It's an amazingly beautiful story. I'm going to preach it sometime, and you'll want to be there when I tell that story. I'm going to tell you this. I won't tell you the effect of the story when I preached it once somewhere before. But nine months later, there were all kinds of effects after that story. It's a great story. But Ruth finds her true love. And she gets married. And she becomes the great-grandmother of David. And she becomes the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus. Because the ascension of David here, and the ascension of Jesus ultimately makes sense of the little stories. Your little story and mine begin to take on new significance. They become important, you see, because of what God is going to do through you and me in the way in which he's placed us in the world. Well, okay, we're moving on here. Uh, I, I said earlier something about the typology of David's life. The three anointings that he receives, one in secret, I think indicates something of the secrecy of G the, the beginnings of the kingdom of God. When Jesus came, he came announcing the kingdom. He announced the kingdom had been inaugurated, but it had not been consummated. It hadn't been fulfilled in its final form. When Jesus came, he announced, he proclaimed the much-expected, oft-predicted, end-times kingdom was at hand, that it had arrived. When he goes to the synagogue, Luke records this, he goes to the synagogue in Nazareth and he opens the scroll of Isaiah the prophet and Isaiah the prophet is talking about the end time kingdom of God. He's talking about the one who will come to end the captivity of uh, the people of God and bring release to captives, those who were held captives, on whom the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of the king, rests in all its fullness and who preaches good news to the afflicted and liberty to the captives and immediately he goes from there. Jesus goes from there. He de defeats Satan. He defeats Satan and brings restoration to people's lives. That's what's happening. We'll see in this story that there's another part to the story. The kingdom is to be consummated. Jesus, uh, David has to become king of all Israel. Jesus is to become king of all the universe in the future. But at this stage, at this stage, that ultimate story is not yet complete. The first stage of David's life, the kingdom is utterly secret as he goes about the Lord's will. Well, let's look secondly. The kingdom is extended through God's grace. What, is, what happens now that David has ascended to Hebron? What happens in verse 7 is that he sends out messengers. He sends out messengers to Jabesh-Gilead. Now, Jabesh-Gilead, the men of Jabesh-Gilead had shown themselves to be heroic. They had uh, come from their little Is uh, their Israeli town and they had penetrated into Philistine territory. They had recovered the bodies of Saul and his sons and had given them a decent burial. This town did not belong to Judah, so David is not their king. This town belongs to another, another tribe in Israel. These people are still loyal to Saul and Saul's memory. 
uh, as you can see in verse 5 and verse 7, where David refers to Saul, your master. So how is David now ascended to Hebron? How is David going to deal with these people whose loyalties still lie elsewhere, whose heart, allegiance, lies elsewhere? Will, what will he do with them? Will he keep a suspicious eye upon them? Will he launch a preemptive strike and neutralize Saul's supporters, potential adversaries? Well, instead of wiping out the city, instead of punishing them, what does he do? He sends messengers. He sends apostles. He, he sends them people to speak to them and to proclaim to them the overtures of peace and friendship and reconciliation that are on offer from David. Look at verses 5 and 6. He communicates his wish that they should know God's blessing. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed of the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. I want you to see what, what David is saying here. He's, he's talking about the very nature of God. He's saying that his appeal to them is based upon the very nature of God himself, the steadfast love and faithfulness, the hesed of God. And what he's doing is he's making overtures to these people. He's saying, because this is covenant language, he wants to form a treaty with them, a covenant with them. He wants them to come into a relationship with them. He's saying to these people, I know that your former allegiances were with Saul. You'd made a covenant with Saul. You were faithful in your allegiance to Saul, but Saul is dead. And he points out, do you notice how he points out, there are new facts now. What are these new facts? The house of Judah has anointed me king over them. He's saying there is a new regime. God has anointed me king. God has exalted me. God has made me high. He's put me up here. And what I'm coming to you to say is this. I don't want to wipe you out. I don't want to destroy you. I'm, I, I want you to be in a relationship with me. A relationship that is built on the relationship that is established by God himself. Steadfast love and faithfulness. But if you're going to know that, if you're going to know the blessing of God and the steadfast love and faithfulness of God, David is straight with them. I need you to recognize. I need you to recognize the new regime. I need you to recognize that there's a king in Israel. The men of Judah have appointed me, anointed me king. What is he doing? He is issuing a royal invitation to these people to join him and to share in his kingdom and to enjoy the blessing of God. You see, old allegiances and loyalties don't transfer automatically. You have to, you have to transfer them yourself. And every one of us in this room, when we're brought into the world, through the course of our lives, give our loyalties and our allegiances to many things. And what the Lord Jesus, what King Jesus is saying to men and women is, I want you to give your heart's allegiance to me. I mean, he puts it like this in, in a whole variety of ways. He, he demonstrates this kind of uh, winsome, loving, pleading way with him as he, as he speaks to people. Jesus says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the kingdom of God has arrived, he says. 
And then he pleads with people. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. No, no, no matter what you're laboring for, laboring under an illusion perhaps, laboring under a burden of guilt perhaps, laboring because of the sufferings you've been through, whatever you're laboring from is irrelevant. But he says to people, laboring under their guilt or their grief or their pain or their suffering, he says, come to me, come to me. Take my yoke upon you. Now, the yoke, of course, was used of the oxen, the oxen that pulled the plough, the, the oxen that treaded the grain. The, the yoke could be comfortable or it could be easy. And Jesus is saying to men and women, look, the, everybody is, is in subservience, in submission to something or someone, and the yoke is either hard or easy. And Jesus is saying to you, my yoke is easy. My yoke, yes, there's authority in coming to me. Yes, there is royalty when you come to me. Yes, there is submission when you come to me. Yes, there is service when you come to me. But I want you to understand, says King Jesus, the steadfast love and faithfulness of God is involved in this. It will bring blessing to you. My yoke is easy. Trains were invented and still are made to run on tracks. And it is while running on the track that a train can exploit, if it was a personality, it could exploit its personality to the fullest. I mean, a train's trainness is demonstrated when it's running on the tracks. If a train, for a moment, should have delusions of grandeur, and if on touring its way through the countryside, the, the train should look around itself and see people riding their horses in the fields or people enjoying fishing down by the, the, the lake or, or people out walking and hiking over the hills, the train should have an idea in its head. I would, be, I would love to do that. I'd love to be going on the horse over the fields here or I would love to be down on the, by the lakeside there with them fishing or I'd love to be hiking in those hills and if the train should in its delusions of grandeur decide to leave the tracks you know what the result would be utter disaster because a train fulfills itself what it is made for to be a train when it is running on the tracks Men and women, men and women, you were made. You were made for God. Without God, it's disaster. Without God in Christ, it is utter disaster. That's why there's death and suffering and sickness and pain and prostitution and people being abused in society. That's why these things are happening in the world. That's why, that's why there is racism. That's why there is violence in the world. It's because of the disaster of men and women going their own way, doing their own thing, leaving the tracks as it were. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. The king who comes speaking about steadfast love and faithfulness says to men and women, you become more human. You become what you were made to be. When you become a Christian, let me tell you, I know some Christians give the idea that when you become a Christian, you start using all kinds of fancy language and you spiritualize everything and you're kind of living up here in the clouds somewhere and they make you feel absolutely useless and miserable and so on. Let me tell you, those people aren't the most spiritual people. Because 
What happens when a person becomes a Christian is they are renewed in the image of God in which they were made originally. In other words, when you become a Christian, you become more human, not less. You become more what God made you to be, not less. And so what David is saying to these people is, look, I want you on the basis of the fact that God has anointed me, on the basis of God's love and faithfulness, transfer loyalties and be what God made you to be. I want to say that to you if you're not a Christian today. If you, you haven't come to Christ, it isn't to take something away from you. It isn't to put burdens on you. Jesus says, my yoke is easy. It is to find yourself, not lose yourself. It is it's to discover what you were made for. And in finding what you were made for, finding real joy that lasts forever. It's extended by grace. And the last thing that we find in this little section that's introduced to us here in verses 8 to 11 is that the kingdom is resisted by God's enemies. There's a reference at the end there to seven and a half years. Jesus, uh, David rather reigned over the house of Judah in Hebron for seven and a half years. And about five and a half years into that reign, a man called Abner, who was a cousin of Saul, a commander of the army, a bit of a mover and a shaker, who fancied himself as a bit of a kingmaker, decides that he will put another king. So what you have at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 8, is that suddenly it goes from there being one king to two kings in Israel. That's one king too many. God will not have that. But immediately we find that there is this rival king comes into the world, comes into the scene. Now in the Gospels we find the king arriving, great, David's greater son, the one promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And when Paul is explaining the good news, the Gospel, in Romans, he ties Jesus to his relationship with David. This is part of the good news of the Gospel. This is how he puts it in Romans chapter 1, God's very own son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus comes as David's Son to inherit David's throne. And what He does when He proclaims the kingdom of God is He builds His church that is, he places his loyal band of servants who have given their hearts allegiance to him. He places his church by the gates of hell. That's where he builds his church. Right by the gates of hell. So that from the very beginning, the church is opposed by hell. The church is at odds with hell. There is conflict between the people of God and hell itself. And Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is pushing, butting, hammering against the gates of hell to extend its influence in the world. The influence of the king. David's kingdom at this stage is nothing 
like what it's going to be under Solomon. Under Solomon, this little kingdom is going to extend and expand until it fills all of the lands promised to Abraham. It's going to fulfill the purpose of God. All the land promised to Abraham will be come part of the kingdom of David. God's word will be fulfilled. And right now, right now, King Jesus reigns on the throne of David. He sends his messengers out with a word of grace to all those who were once loyal to the things of this world. And he invites them. He invites them to the gospel feast. He invites them to be part of this new thing that God is doing in the world. And one day, one day, King Jesus will reign from shore to shore. One day, all the nations of the world, all of them will bring their glory into the kingdom of God. One day, reigning from Zion, King Jesus will welcome men and women and boys and girls from every tribe and nation and language. They'll all come on that day. And the whole universe will be his. Not just a little bit of territory in the Middle East. That was only ever a picture of the promised land. The meek shall inherit the earth. And that's going to come. That's going to come. But in the meantime, the meantime, the kingdom is small, just one of the twelve tribes. It's small. In the meantime, it's resisted. Other kings, like the one Abner puts in, the place, in place, will take up their stand against the people of God. The Philistines are still the major players in the region. The northern tribes are much more numerous than little Judah. The central stage of history was not to be found in little Judah. No, it is found elsewhere. And still the church of Jesus Christ is being attacked, isn't it, in the world today? I think of Stephen Hawking who wrote an essay entitled God Did Not Create the Universe. And the last line, the closing line of that essay reads like this. Who are the lords of the universe? He's rejected the idea that there's anybody outside of the universe or anything outside of the universe. Who are the lords of the universe? His answer, we are. We are. And I think the retort of, one of, the, of another writer to that kind of statement would be something like this. I think it, it is C.S. Lewis who writes it. At one point he says, supposing that is true, supposing we are the lords of the universe. What a small universe we inhabit. What a small universe this is. If we are its lords, how weak, how futile, how small our universe is. Or I think of Swinburne's great hymn to man, 19th century, early 20th century. Glory to man in the highest, for man is the master of things. Well, do we even have everything in our own control? Or I think of James Watson, one of the scientists that discovered DNA, the double helix, and uh, he won a Nobel Prize for his work. But James Watson says this, listen, the two stupidest sentences in the English language are love your enemy and the meek shall inherit the earth. Kingdom that Jesus planted is insignificant. It is defeated. It is backwards. It is nothing in the eyes of the world. 
It is always opposition to the kingdom of God. The nations of the world take their stand. David wrote this in the second psalm, didn't he? Against the Lord and against his anointed. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury and say, As for me, I have set my king on Zion. Today we don't see everything put under his feet. Today Jesus reigns as David reigned there, but things are still apparently out of his control. But we see there is an end to David's story. He will yet reign from Jerusalem. He will yet reign over all the tribes of Israel. He will yet occupy the land from Dan to Beersheba. He will yet do this, but not yet. And Paul writes, the Apostle Paul writes this, that one form or another, when Jesus comes in great power and great glory, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, after destroying every rule, every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Jesus shall reign from shore to shore, His reign will be inviolable. His reign will be eternal. Eternal. His reign will be transcendent. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we come into your presence, those of us who are actively rebel rebels against the rightful king of our hearts and the king of the universe would bow the knee to him and welcome him and discover in welcoming him this is what we were made for. This is what life is about. This is what makes me get up in the morning. This is what makes me breathe during the day. This is what enables me to lie down at night and rest in peace. This is what illumines the darkest moments of my day. This is what gives the deepest joy to my heart. This is what will be my final thought as breath ebbs away. This will be my exquisite pleasure when I awake and see him whom my soul loves. Give us a heart, we pray, Father, for our King, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.